Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM, it all happens here. The week trending, Brianna Parkins, columnist for the Irish Times and all Tomas McDermott, MD of the Communications Clinic are with us. Brianna, you came to Ireland how many years ago now? Because you would have had to have learnt about Ian Bailey and the mm-hmm. linking of him to the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. What did you make of it all? So this happened at the same time West Cork was coming out, the podcast. And it was really interesting because this case, you know, there's, there's the crime aspect of it, but there's also what it did for the medium of podcasting. And that was the first really big podcast, I think, in Ireland that people were downloading, were listening to, and that really brought attention to the medium. And it also brought secondary attention to how we treat true crime as a genre. We'd always had, you know, true crime sort of documentaries. We'd had, you know, the red tops uh, were always heavy on crime. People were always interested in this, but it really took another layer to this voyeuristic podcast, let's go find out the truth, and not just being a reporter, but also being a semi-investigator at the same time. And I think it's been really interesting watching those two things converge because you're seeing Sophie's family you know, protest their treatment in certain documentaries. They didn't like that that Bailey was platformed in one of the documentaries. They talk about the fact that people go and they've asked people not to take selfies at the house, at her house or the spot she was murdered in. Do people go and do that? Well, yeah, the family have actually, the, her family, has, her older sister specifically requested people not take selfies and she used the word selfie, which means that there obviously is evidence that that is happening and that is out there. So I think it really repointed our focus to, okay, true crime and true crime podcasts are a massive genre now but what are the ethics around uh, you know the treatment of these things for the victims families left behind I mean this is murder is you know we have the saying in journalism if it leads it bleeds we know murder is entertainment but we really need to examine the ethics behind that and I think West Cork that podcast really blew the doors open on that what do you make of it all on yeah, well, on it, this is almost a combination of all of the elements of what makes an interesting story. You have a beautiful woman at the beginning of it who is brutally murdered. Uh, you have an uh, unusual main uh, suspect uh, in the middle of it, and we have a, a whole series of events around the Garda Shirkana that may not have necessarily been particularly positive. I find it That's a very polite way of saying they botched the investigation. They botched the investigation. Would be certainly uh, maybe a more accurate assessment of it. I think, unfortunately, though, the death of Ian Bailey means that nothing else though has changed. We're still in the same position. Bar he is he is dead. And what struck me as probably the maybe a most accurate assessment of his uh, character came from Jules Thomas this week when she was interviewed about this is his former partner her former partner who stood by him uh, when he was a pariah and stood by him um, during significant domestic abuse and how she how he treated her was appalling and when she was asked, and indeed he was convicted for assault convicted in three months in prison um, for that crime and which again gives you an in, uh, certainly a sense of his character the type she, of person he was and yes. when she when she was asked about how did she feel about his death she said, he is not in my thoughts. And that just struck me as a very stark statement for somebody who've spent a significant amount of time with to say after they have died that they're not in my thoughts, I think gives you a sense of the type of person Ian was. It's a very interesting point you bring up about the platforming issue, Mm. Brianna, because this is something we've actually considered here on the programme on a number of occasions. And he was a guest, he was interviewed, and he liked making himself available for interview. Now, there were legitimate news reasons for talking to him, uh, particularly when the French were trying him in absentia and he was fighting extradition to France. 
Um, and also around the times when those documentaries you mentioned and podcasts were out about his involvement and role in that and how he was claiming his innocence. But the feeling did develop that this was a man who was actually in a perverse way enjoying the limelight and then also seemed, as time went on, to have far more sympathy for his own victimhood than he did for the woman who was killed. I mean, certainly that was the feeling of locals who have been quoted in several news articles this week saying that he did enjoy the attention, he did enjoy sort of being at the centre of it all. And that was one of Sophie's family's chief complaints about one of the documentaries that aired. It was that it was more focused on Bailey and not Sophie as a victim and not her family and not who she was before she was murdered. It was about, did this man do it or not? And I think we'll remember the really controversial interview that he did with Sinead O'Connor when she was sort of, you know, I think dipping her toes into a journalism career. And uh, she's a a brilliant writer. I mean, the first paragraph of that interview talks about how... she talks about how she would never put herself on the witness stand because most people would be terrible witnesses for themselves and says that Bailey is is one of those people. Um, And there's a lot of sort of conversation around was she a vulnerable person? I mean, just safety-wise, going down to interview this man by herself. Bailey then turned around and said that she was a terrible interviewer and he had to coach her mid-interview about how to ask questions because she was asking rambling questions and too many at once. And there was So a good bit of mansplaining going on. Yeah, basically like, ah, this poor little woman coming down into interview me but the resulting work was really really interesting but he was someone who did enjoy being at the centre of it all even if he was being accused of murder Yeah, which he always denied and I think we do have to say there is the possibility that somebody else was responsible for the murder because the Director of Public Prosecutions on a number of occasions was given files and refused to go forward with a prosecution because didn't feel there was a likelihood of conviction. Well, this is, we know that he had a a perverse enjoyment of the limelight. We know that in many cases he was a danger to women, but neither of those things um, are evidence um, of... Uh, are certainly evidence that he murdered Sophie Toussaint de Plantier and that there was never enough for a prosecution. You certainly, again, would have to uh, have huge sympathy for her family who are clearly very angry, clearly very upset, and they clearly have their belief in relation to what happened uh, to their family member. But you can, again, understand why it is a difficulty for Angarda Shikana and the DPP on their assessment of this cold case and what will happen next. Okay, let's move on. And tonight we have on RT television on the Late Late Show something that, as the old film that I am, I continue to refer to as the National Song Contest, as it used to be. But it's for many years now the Euros, a Euro song selection. And we played clips from each of the songs last Tuesday evening. And Dave Hanratty was very strong about should we be even going to the Eurovision Song Contest if Israel is allowed to participate. Should we, Brianna? I mean, this was a big question back in 2019 when in Israel was hosting the Eurovision after they had won the year before. There was calls to boycott. There was calls from... Uh, my brain has stopped working there. Um, Roger, Roger Waters? Sorry, I had actually forgotten about the fact yeah. that there was a controversy in 2019. And then there is the Roger Waters so for me of Pink the, Floyd like, as well. I was like, old, old white man band who plays too long guitar solos. <laughs> that was what's going through my head. And I was like, don't say that. I'm like, Roger Waters. <laughs> Uh, no, he. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he was. He called out Madonna for going to perform, but Madonna did perform, and she had a dancer with a Palestinian flag and a dancer with an Israeli flag come out hand in hand. She did kind of a bit a of two a two-state solution. Yeah, <laughs> via Madonna, she did kind of do a bit of a protest 
dance song, whatever you want to call it. So this isn't new and there's some really fascinating research that ties um, geopolitics with Eurovision. This is actually something that I studied at university. <laughs> what? It's a topic at university? Yeah, you Are you made a sort of thesis uh, no, or something, did you? geopolitics and this was someone something that someone had written uh, like a research piece on and music journalists had also covered it and talked about how countries vote according to geopolitical lines. Does Ireland give their points to England? Do we? No. Uh, how the Scandies block vote, how the you know Eastern European Balkan countries block vote, people who are trying to get into the EU are actually Indeed, getting Indeed, European expansion was the worst thing for Irish <laughs> dominance of the Eurovision. <laughs> yeah, you haven't, yeah, are we still the number one in terms of wins? Have we still got that title? I don't know. I'm not the resident Eurovision expert here. I tend to look at Terry Wogan as uh, a guide on this. As we know, Terry would have um, commentated significantly on the BBC. And his assessment of it was that it's just terrible rubbish and that is an appalling appalling example of culture, which I think when it comes from Terry Wogan is his... That has nothing to do with the question I asked you about, (laughs) Um, which was about whether (laughs) Ireland should be participating in the Eurovision. Well, the question... Before I come to the answer, the question is, should Israel be even competing? Because, for example, A, should they not be kicked out of it? And B, it's not in Europe. But Australia, for example, are in hey. it as well, which is all the more baffling uh, as well as we go through. I will fight this, right? This is something I will die in a ditch about, um, that Australia has the biggest Eurovision audience outside of Europe, and it's because we're a country of immigrants. So I remember getting up at three or four in the morning with my Croatian friends, my Serbian friends, my Greek friends, everyone whose parents had migrated in the last 10, 20 years, and we'd all watch Eurovision together. So I think it is important that we're in it because of our immigration. Okay. It's an interesting point though you raise on whether Israel should be in it because obviously Russia were thrown out because correct. of the invasion of Ukraine. But as we've already discussed with Aoife O'Donoghue, Germany is strongly backing Israel in the International Court of Justice. There are many EU countries who do not want to be seen to be against Israel, I think for fear of being called anti-Semitic. So in other words, Israel is not going to get thrown out of the Eurovision Song Contest. So should those countries which take a stronger line on Israel say, well, if they're not going to be thrown out, we won't turn up? Well, there is certainly an argument to be made at that. And we have seen that, for example, when you think back to some of the Olympic Games, for example, in the 80s, certain states wouldn't have turned up for certain behaviours of hosts. I think if you think about about it as well, there is probably a way up for the Eurovision on whether or not they politicise something that they have tried for a significant portion of time to maintain as apolitical. But we do know in Ireland, for example, that we have a long history in being able to make protests. For example, uh, we should be proud that this year marks the 40th year of the Dunstores strike that went on for three and a half years in relation to South Africa and the apartheid there. Uh, And we should be very proud of it and I hope that will get some sort of recognition. I think though we do have to ask ourselves the question whether Israel are allowed to compete or not, or if Ireland go, do we actually think it'll make a blind bit of difference? Because as we have seen from Israel for many years, if not decades, they ignore the UN and they're going to ignore the um, International Court of Justice into sort of any ruling and so whether or not they turn up to the um, uh, Eurovision will only be tokenism unfortunately and not lead to any positive outcome. I've had a correspondence from a listener to tell us that Sweden drew level with Ireland last year with the win. There you go. I remember there was a really good quote about Eurovision from a music journalist, possibly Rolling Stone, and she said that Eurovision was is what happens if women and the gays ran the world. That's what world politics would look like is Eurovision. So it's interesting that these, these topics are coming up in debate and it will be interesting to see how Israel is treated by other contestants at the competition.
We will return with the week trending with Brianna Parkins and on Tomas McDermott after this break. Very interesting comment from listeners says, why the outrage with just Israel? There are plenty of participating countries in Eurovision with appalling crimes such as Azerbaijan, and there's Turkey and its treatment of women in the LBG communities. There's even Britain's treatment of refugees wanting to send them to Rwanda. Outrage can be shown to plenty if you dig deep enough. Just let the Eurovision be good damn escapism and stop the half-hearted caring for you Humanity. Interesting. And I think we've got, a, you're saying earlier, we had a, a, someone talked to us about Australia's treatment of Indigenous people. It is Australia Day, by the way. Um, and I think it's interesting because Irish people tend to forget their own uh, actions in colonialism there. So. What actions in colonialism? We're all anti-colonialists. We were the victims, Brianna. Yeah, that's not what your president apologised for in 2017 uh, for the uh, participation and potential benefiting from colonialism that Irish people experience. Maybe not under the Irish flag, but it happened. I missed that, Sean. <laughs> it happens. Okay, Brianna, uh, what story did you like most from Killian Murphy's nomination for Best Actor in the Oscars? Wasn't it? Just a delightful uh, interview with Patrick Freen and then his dad's interview um, in Irish there. Uh, I'm not going to pronounce, I can't do Irish last names, but Mr. Mr. Murphy Sr. Um, talked about his, his child's uh, achievements in possibly the most Irish way, which is just sort of saying, look, he has, he has a job. Lots of other people's sons and daughters have a job and if he wins, he'll get a cake, um, which I thought was... This fun. is Brendan Omoroku, his father. It's actually a bit of a Roy Keane thing. It's like the way Roy Keane goes, you know, he's doing his job. Like, you yeah. know, what else do you expect? Is he yeah. getting a medal for doing his job? And as they say, he was Lon Lebrod, so he was very <laughs> he was very proud of his son. I think as well what he has managed to do, there's nothing more than Irish people love than when somebody well-known or somebody who's seriously successful and a world-famous actor or their family downplays uh, the success that they have had stays grounded and stays normal. We just love it. So not only did it show great modesty, it played very well with the rest of us. I think it's, it's hugely well deserved from Killian uh, Murphy. I thought he was stunning in Oppen- Oppenheimer, where he really stole every scene, if not was in most scenes, and he was fantastic. But it was it was fantastic, lovely to see. And then the, as you mentioned, the Patrick Frayne interview, where it was going to be just taken in the stride, have a cup of tea and a bit of cake, uh, was a delight. Okay. Were you annoyed by the Barbie snob? I tend not to get too bought into the uh, sort of Oscar thing because there's been so many different you know, people who should have been deserving over the years. It took Leonardo DiCaprio how many years to get a nomination? There's been so many cases of people being robbed either at you know being a nominee, not getting the award or not being nominated at all. But I'd say it is unusual that both the director and the main actress did not get a little nod there. Especially when the male actor did get nominated. And also America Ferreira did get, you know, a nod there as well for supporting actress, um, I'm pretty sure. So, you know, the, the, the movie was, you know, it was given some credit, but I think not to nominate at least Greta Gerwig was insane. For, well, you know, it's, she's the first woman, I think, to gross over is a billion. Um, not to recognise that achievement, I think, was, was pretty pointed. And then again, that tweet from, um, or that message from Hillary Clinton talking about you know, don't be too disheartened. She just can't let it go. No, I mean, there was a bit of solidarity towards, uh, you know, look, it's not you, it's not personal that you've missed out. We all know what it's like to miss out because we're a woman. I mean, I found that quite interesting that she was able to relate that back to herself. That was quite pointed. 
Okay, this is something far more serious, and I think it might be very upsetting to some people to hear about this, Owen, but the latest method of execution in the United States, the use of nitrogen gas. Yeah, so Kenneth Smith was executed in uh, Alabama, and it was death by breathing in nitrogen gas through a face mask, uh, which causes oxygen uh, deprivation. It was described by the authorities in in Alabama as the most humane method of execution. It took 22 uh, minutes. Given that he was convulsing in, in the gurney for 22 minutes, you would have to say that is an inaccurate assessment of it. Um, he was in an, unu- he's an unusual case where he actually survived another execution in 2022 um, and he was obviously then brought back um, having had his plea um, thrown out by the Supreme Court. Um, and really... It kind of again tells you a, a story about uh, America that I find really it is an extraordinary that an educated, developed uh, democracy and society thinks that it is a it is an okay thing to do and it is acceptable to execute its citizens. I think first and foremost that's that's one point. I think then also the, it is clear that the judicial system in America is broken. America has more people in prison than any other country in the world. For example, they've 1.8 million people in prison. China has 1.69. So that just gives you a sense of it. In relation then to access, for example, like it, there are, for instance, there are simply, you, you are more likely to end up in prison than get to college if you are African-American, for instance. Um, just to give you a sense of the uh, population comparisons, in the US, 13% of the population are black. In US prisons, 37% of the population are black. So we can see that there is a certainly um, a, a, a problem there. So when you combine all of that together, when we look at an uh, at a country that describes itself as the leader of the free world, that you would have to say that their judicial system and that their way of dealing with crime is broken. Brianna, what do you make of this? I mean, to say that this is a method that is more humane, I mean, it's called nitrogen hypoxia, but really it's asphyxiation. It's depriving the body of oxygen. It's incredibly painful. It's like putting a plastic bag over someone's head, really, like, in terms of effect. And they talked about it. I don't think humanity is the push for the reason for the method change. It's also due to the fact that the drugs which were used in lethal injection is becoming increasingly hard to come by because there's a European ban on pharmaceutical companies manufacturing and supplying that drug. So that's also a reason we could be seeing more people executed in this manner. I mean, I don't think there's many people who'd be fans of the death penalty and the fact that this man was killed for, he's basically a contract killer for hire for... was hired for a thousand dollars back in the 80s and the man who contracted the hit um, was this woman's husband and he killed himself and never faced justice so to say that oh this woman's family has you know received justice and i hope they have peace of mind well no they don't because her family was one of the the murderers really so i don't think it's brought anyone peace of mind um i just don't know how you could justify it okay move on to something else Uh, there's a report this week or a piece in The Independent, which was under the headline, I'm Irish living in London and people mock my accent all the time. It's just rude. Yes, this was a piece by Isabel Duff. Good day, Brianna. <laughs> yeah, I presume nobody ever mocks your accent here in Ireland, um, do they? Like, I'd like to say, look, there's a bit of more flavour there with English people doing it to Irish people and the presumption of colonialism and the presumption that, you know, Irish people are less worthy or less clever and deserve to be mocked. But yous all do it to us non-stop. The amount of times I've had the, my accent badly repeated back at me with shrimp on the barbie. No one says shrimp. We call them prawns for a start. You're embarrassing yourself. <laughs> or an Al Stewart. 
<laughs> you know, but you kind of have to just take it as par for the course at this stage. And I think, you know, try not to, what's the, what's the quote? Don't attribute to, uh, you know, nastiness, what can be explained by ignorance. So I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. Okay. Tell us about this story from the UK, Sophie's Friada. <laughs> So uh, she talks about, it's sort of an opinion piece, and she's moved there, lived there for a couple of years, and she describes her accent as Leinster with a touch of D4. So maybe this is this person's first time ever being mocked of her accent. I think if perhaps you had a working class or a regional Irish accent, you'd be maybe a bit more used to this or a northern accent. But she talks about the case of a conservative councillor on Dorset's council and he was actually done, he got a rap on the knuckles um, for repeating an Irish colleague's accent and he was really surprised when he got done and sent off to, you know, sensitivity training. He's like, I've known this woman for like eight years and she's never complained to me, which just says there's probably a real insensitivity there. Um, and she talks about it, you know, being uh, but only a thing that she experiences in the UK. She doesn't experience it in in, in um, the US. So she sees it almost as a sort of like a, a colonial sort of boistering of, you know, you'll take it from us because you're a bit of a joke. And, I you know, I understand there is an added layer there, but as an Antipodean, we are constantly mocked and made fun of by Europeans. So I, I understand it, but maybe it's not as bad as she makes it out. Oh, I, think it's just, I think it's just bad manners. I think there are two things that you can never do to somebody else. One is to tell them that they look like somebody. Unless they're, you're telling them that they look like Brad Pitt or Margot Robbie, the, the comparison will always be felt as a criticism. And the second thing you can never do is to imitate them in front of themselves because, again, they will be offended by it. So I think this story really smacks of bad manners. Whether an English person does it or happens, maybe <laughs> perhaps an Irish person does it to our Australian friends. Um, that's just bad manners, I would say, man. OK, we have to bring it to an end there. Thank you, both of you, so much for being with us for the week trending. Owen Tomas McDermott from the Communications Clinic and Brianna Parkins from the Irish Times. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.